Greetings, podcast friends. So glad that you're joining us for these episodes. We really appreciate it. I like to think of myself as fairly courageous. In fact, one of my mottos I adopted from Barbara Stanny or Houston, who's an earlier guest on the show, is to do something scary every day. So I go backcountry skiing on glaciers in remote parts of Alaska, guided by, I will say, a super experienced son, um, roped up so that we don't fall through crevasses. I readily take work assignments in war zones in Afghanistan, South Sudan, and most recently, the Central African Republic. I try to be courageous with my own inner evolution, um, to keep growing as a human, to be honest with myself and others, uh, to speak truth to power, and to keep doing what I can do to create a more peaceful and sustainable planet in the time that I have left. So um, I have deep respect for my guest today, Saba Ismail, who grew up in northwestern Pakistan, pretty much the most dangerous place on earth to be a woman. Saba and her sister Gulai and the well-known Malala, who comes from the same region and was uh, shot in the head simply for advocating for girls' education, are speaking up in the face of many forces that would like to silence them. I am especially like using this platform of the Peace Building Podcast uh, to show the courageous young work of women like Saba, who is uh, now 32, but has been at this since the age of 15. So a few excerpts from her bio. Uh, Saba Ismail is a feminist peace activist and is working for the empowerment of young women. At the age of 15, with other young women fellows, she co-founded Aware Girls, a young women-led organization working for empowering young women by strengthening their leadership. The young women of Aware Girls engage in Countering Violent Extremism, or CVE, programs in which young people are persuaded to not join militant groups and instead create open spaces for dialogue and promote nonviolence and pluralism in the community. She was uh, one of the first to convince the diplomatic community of the importance of including youth in building a more peaceful world. And uh, Foreign Policy magazine acknowledged her bravery and activism by recognizing her as one of the 100 leading global thinkers of 2013 and has been acknowledged in the 30 Under 30 campaign by the National Endowment for Democracy for her long struggle for democracy peace, and women's rights. So here are um, some of what I call my favorite frames of the episode. First of all, just thinking back a number of months back when I first reached out to Saba, she wasn't even able to do this interview because things were too dangerous for her sister Gulai, who was in hiding. Uh, Saba was out of Pakistan but uh, Gulalai had not been able to get out and was in hiding from the Pakistani military. Uh, another is that when she describes her father as, a, quote unquote, the problem, and then agrees that he was the blessing because um, she has experienced firsthand to be a jihadist. Uh, the influences were all around her as a young person in her school, in her community. And uh, she believed them until her father, who is a human rights activist, saw what she and her siblings were coming home with from school and intervened to make sure that he could counter the indoctrination. I just want to comment, the role of fathers in the empowerment of daughters is, is uh, documented, but I have seen so many times in my own experience um, when I was working with two factions of Kurds in northern Iraq and there were no women among the participants, and I suggested that some be included. It was a father who insisted that his daughter go, even though the mother and the grandmother were like dead set against it. I couldn't help but notice when I was working with the senior women leaders of the Afghan government, how many of them told me how supportive their fathers had been in uh, them developing themselves and in their success. And um, here again in Saba's story, a father who really paved the way for her sister Gulalai and her to make a real difference to their community and the world. So um, another frame is uh, the images of her and other members of Aware Girls 
going into the madrasas to convince young people that the Quran does not support violence and jihad and how useful it would be if, if everyone supported that kind of peace building initiative rather than some of the focus on military interventions, which don't seem to be very effective. Another is that the Pakistani military seems so hell-bent on oppressing young women like Saba and her sister and her family, rather than recognizing them as uh, the incredible global peace builders that they are. What Saba describes as the Pakistani Me Too movement, delegations of women who traveled to northwestern Pakistan, Waziristan, in spite of incredible physical difficulties uh, to show support for other women. She said it was like one of the first time anything like this had happened in Pakistan. And that, again, many elements of my country can't help but think about are often supporting the kinds of authoritarian regimes like what currently exist in Pakistan, rather than supporting the development of young women and men like Saba and how our war on terror, rather than making the world safer, as, as Stephanie Savell really told us in the last episode, have left too many kids growing up in cultures of extremism, jihad, and violent conflict. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. And without further ado, I bring you Saba Ismail. So Saba, thank you um, for joining us on the Peace Building Podcast. It is really a pleasure to be able to give voice uh, to women like yourself and be able to give global voice to women like yourself, who um, is a younger woman than me and is doing really amazing work. So um, hello and welcome. Thank you so much, Susan. Um, you know, I like these podcasts to be as personal as possible. And I know you've probably told your story many times, but I, I think it's really, you know, to introduce you to listeners to tell us who you are and where you come from and how do you think that's influenced why we are here today and having this conversation. Well, thank you so much. It's uh, quite, I think it's, uh, you know, I'll try to summarize these answers, but you I think- You don't have to be too, I mean, you know, we have 45 minutes, but one of the things that's nice about podcasts is we can be a little bit richer, a little bit more in depth than a 10 minute mm. interview, you know? Uh, yeah, so definitely because it's like, you know, who I am and the background is quite, you know, intense, I would say. Uh, because, well, I have experienced what it takes to make a young person want to be a jihadist. Um, I was born in a very small and rural village in the northwest of Pakistan, uh, and it's that area is deeply religious and deeply uh, traditional. Um, I, you know, I had Scylla Elworthy on the show who wrote Business Plan for Peace. Yeah. He describes that part of Pakistan as probably the most dangerous place in the world to be a woman and I don't know yeah it is uh, it is one of the most dangerous places on earth for women and also you know being well I was raising up I was taught about warriors who destroyed Hindu temples and churches and was told that these are my true heroes and my teachers taught me to hate life believing that this life current life is very short the real life is after life and the earlier I start that you know the luckier I am so while I grew up, I saw images of abuses and violence against Muslims in Kashmir and Palestine fueled young people's zeal for jihad. And we were told that it was our religious duty uh, to help Muslims through the violent jihad who were suffering in other countries. So you so, let, me, let me slow you down. So how many kids in your family? We are six siblings. And where do you fall in the lineup? Uh, number four. Number four. Yes. So you were born in, in a town in, in northwest Pakistan. Yes, in a village, in a rural village in northwest of Pakistan. And then I grew up in the city, Peshawar, which uh, the name of the city is Peshawar. Uh, and I studied from public education system, you know, uh, not from the government, but the private school system. And there I was taught about, you know, the hatred. There was, uh, I was taught about, you know, the how this is my duty to fight and engage in violent jihad. Uh, and I saw while growing up, I and my siblings, we we saw thousands of young people going to fight. Uh, we saw, you know, families receiving dead bodies of their loved ones killed in jihad. And these deaths were cherished in the villages and in, in, in the northwest of Pakistan. The families were considered holier than others. And just everyone believed that the whole family would be going to heaven 
guaranteed. So I, you know, as a young, you know, not as a young, but as a kid actually wanted my family in heaven too, for sure. And you as an age at this point that you were aware of that thought? Uh, well, these thoughts were introduced to me from since I, you know, started going to school, maybe from third grade, they start doing, you know, teaching all this, you know, seven, eight years old. Mm-hmm. And, but then what I, you know, and because I was learning so much from this educational system and everything, I also wanted my family to go to heaven because heaven was, of course, seen as a beautiful thing. And, you know, so the, the problem was our father. And our father was a human rights activist and a teacher. He didn't believe in any war or any jihad. He just believed in peace. See the problem or the blessing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. But at that time, as a kid, we were thinking, I and my siblings were thinking that he's the problem because we all, he actually overheard all of us, you know, discussing about how we all want to be martyrs and we want to go to, you know, and fight this jihad as, as, you know, as young kids. Um, What was the lineup, uh, girls, boys? So uh, we are all kind of mixed. So the, the eldest one is sister. Uh, then we have one brother, then one sister, then it's me, then my brother, and then sister. Uh, Bilal is second. Is, she's a third, but she's like one year elder than me. We have exactly one year difference. Okay. So our father actually, you know, invested in our education. A lot of people and families surrounding us were investing in buying homes and cars and land. And our father was when he saw, when he overheard this conversation that we were having and the influence from the society and generally, especially from our schooling system and our desires to be martyr, he was like, you know, he has to do something immediately for this. And he realized that his children, his own children has been indoctrinated. So he started a mission of his own to help us uh, unlearn all of these things and, you know, to undo the harm that is already done. So he started actually teaching us about uh, local heroes, the men and the women who were not using weapons, but who were using their voices and who like people like Gandhi and people like Baja Khan, who is known as the frontier Gandhi. Let me actually back up even further. How did he get these ideas? Uh, so he's a uh, he's an activist, and he used to uh, he's a he was a political activist as well, and, and a human rights defender. Uh, but he learned all of these things by himself because he was his own father was uh, was dead when he was like fifteen years old. So he realized all these things in his society, and he he self actually educated himself, and you know everything. Uh, but I think it's very rare for you know for men to raise to raise kids like this in the Northwest of Pakistan. Usually in the Northwest of Pakistan, the way people raise their children and kids are, they spend all of their resources on boys and they invest, you know, their resources on weapons as well. So that when there are family feuds, the son are, you know, able to fight with other families and, and all that. But our father was very different. He always invested in education for both girls and boys. What's interesting in general about that is, you know, in terms of tracking women and women's empowerment is so often uh, it's fathers that have really supported their girls in terms of stepping into their leadership. I mean, I have seen some research about this, but I also just anecdotally see it over and over and over again, that the power that fathers have in terms of helping girls uh, realize how powerful they are. Yeah, in this, uh, yeah, it's my personal, uh, of course, experience and also to see that, you know, the patriarch of the family is um, is towards women's empowerment. It really helps the next generation uh, because definitely at the end, even, you know, the, you know, in our society, men, the patriarch have a lot of power to decide how their families will, you know, go forward and, you know, their next generation. So in our case as well, you know, the patriarch, who is our father of the family, or was a human rights defender, he didn't want it, you know, that uh, uh, the patriarchy to move forward in the family, but he wanted to have a different family. He wanted to have equal rights to both his daughters and son, and that's why this, you know, the things changed from there. And on the process, he definitely introduced it to other inspirational women as well, other feminists, other free thinkers. Like, other, do you remember? I do remember. I do remember a politician a former, who's, who's now a former politician, but has, her name is Bushra Gohar. She's a Pakistani former um, parliamentarian. And women like uh, Rakshanda Naz, who is now, he's also now the chair of the, uh, the she's the ombudsperson for the laws against uh, sexual harassment, against workplace. So she's the ombudsperson in the Khyber in the northwest of Pakistan. And women like another name is Miraj Humayun. And, you know, the women who were heading UN agencies at that time in Peshawar. 
So he introduces to very different women, you know, uh, very different women from the society and very inspirational. And Saba, what did your mom think about this? Uh, she's always very supportive towards all these ideas and towards our book. Um, I think without her support, she has never, uh, you know, she has been to school only for like uh, two or three years. Till third grade, she went to school and then she was not allowed. She was dropped off uh, because this school was in another village. And, you know, the grandfather was didn't allow girls for education to go to another school. It was not accessible and it was not their priority at all to educate their uh, daughters and even their sons. So, um, you know, so but she can communicate in, you know, in basic in English. She can communicate. She understand the issues. And she's been extremely supportive in our work. And there have been a lot of incidents that which I'm going to share later, actually, uh, now and what happened, especially recently in the past one year with my family. And my mother was the one who took the lead on all that. Yeah. It was not my father, but my mother who has been leading. But I think it will be a little bit more relevant if I share it, you know, a little bit later. What are we like? Yeah. Yeah. So growing up, you know, as I said, growing up, he in all these women that I met, I also met another woman who changed my life and who, you know, the, the reason why I started working on, on peace building and, and um, was because uh, when I met this one uh, woman who's, uh, you know, and this story is about her 13 years old son. And like many other young boys after school, he was also going to the madrasa to learn the Quran. And just like in these typical, uh, in a majority of these madrasas in Pakistan, he was also taught about the importance of fall and jihad. And that God comes first and parents come later. God is always first. And by God, I mean, you know, the violent jihad, that's how they equate that the violent jihad comes first and parents come second. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he didn't need, uh, needed his parents' permission to go to the jihad. So he, one day he was disappeared. And then the family received his dead body. Uh, he actually went to Afghanistan for the jihad where he was killed. So his family was, of course, very, you know, kind of privileged and uh, like, you know, very uh, in terms of like, you know, they were very sure that they will go to heaven. But also the mother was very devastated to receive the dead body of a 13 year old son in which he, she, you know, she didn't knew. When I saw that mother being devastated, that was also, you know, that was the moment for me to realize that jihad is not about justice. It's about pain. It, it, there is no glory in that. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, you know, that, that woman and her son's story, and when I listened to them and I met them, it really affected me. And that was our calling for me and my sister Gulali. And that's how we decided to start our work. And we established Aware Girls, a young women-led organization, and then we formed Youth Peace Network, in which we stopped young people from being getting re recruited by the jihadi groups. Could you say, uh, slow that down, because I've heard uh, Silla told me a bit about that work, but it'd be interesting. So you were actually going into madrasas and convincing people that the Quran did not support the idea of violent um, so you tell it. <laughs> so what we actually have been doing is that we have established this youth peace network, which is a network of young people. Uh, and we build the capacity of young people as peace builders. And then the young people work with their peers to prevent them from being getting recruited by the militant groups. The Youth Peace Network, basically, uh, we started it with like 30 young people. And now we have more than 22 groups active in Pakistan and Afghanistan. So, but this started with you and Gulali? Yes. That's amazing. I mean, really, congratulations. Thank yeah, thank you so much. We have been doing this work because we both grew up in conflict. We have witnessed and we have experienced. And of course, our, you know, perspectives are different. We know the realities. We know the, you know, and we also know the, the, the problem, the root causes. So we are addressing the root causes. But also through this network, we are bringing communities Together, we are reconstructing uh, the barns in the communities that were, uh, you know, destroyed by the militant groups. But we are bringing communities together of different faiths, different cultures, different ethnicities together on one platform so that they can, one, collectively build a narrative of tolerance and peace. But, you know, also uh, to have a culture of dialogue where people from different religious backgrounds and different point of views can sit together and talk in a safe environment, you know, to create this conducive environment where there is no space for violent ideologies and which is more conducive for peace building and coexisting on nonviolence. So let me, um, this sounds amazing. And let me back up uh, to something that's again, more personal because I think that what you're describing is something that would require you to have a lot of 
self-confidence and a lot of ability to not get afraid. I mean, to maybe be afraid, but to do things anyway. I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but uh, I'm guessing that you often found yourself in scary situations. Um, So I wondered if you could, you know, because I think, I think that, Part of my objective is that I, I, you know, there's there's obviously a movement all over the world of women, girls waking up, men waking up around gender equality, and yet in the West, I think that women are living a much mostly a softer existence. You know, they're more protected from some of the realities that you were faced, you know, right up front with. So I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about your internal how you've dealt with your own fear, how you've built your own self-confidence and how you have been able to get out of your own way to be able to do the kind of work that you're just describing. Yeah, it, uh, it needs a lot of courage and bravery. Uh, and it needs, it's not easy. It's very, um, it's very risky to work on these issues in, in the northwest of Pakistan. I mean, I will say you couldn't even talk to me when I first reached out to you, right? What happened exactly? Yeah, so I'm just about to come to exactly to that point is why I'm unable to talk and, you know, why? Because it needs so much, uh, you know, out of the world bravery. It's so, uh, and my family is among the rarest of, you know, families in the northwest of Pakistan that stood it to so much, uh, to so much crackdown in the past, at least one year, but specifically with the past few months, what has happened with my sister Gulale, who is the co-founder of Awagas and who have done all the work on, you know, he's the founder of the Youth Peace Network and working to prevent young people to be recruited from the military groups. What has happened with her as she has faced online campaigns, she has faced death threats, blasphemy campaigns against her. She was illegally detained. She was disappeared by the state, disappeared for more than 40 hours where none of our family members knew where she is. She was missing. Um, and my understanding is that if she gets accused of blasphemy, that's the uh, consequence is death, no? Yes, the de- penalty is death penalty. But And what recently she's currently at this moment, she's facing uh, terrorism and sedition cases against her, multiple, uh, you know, sedition and terrorism cases. The reason, and she's also put on exit control list. Uh, Sorry, what control list? Exit control list, exit. which is a no, tra- yeah, which doesn't allow anyone to travel outside the country. So it's the travel ban on her and the travel is that is preventing her from traveling outside of the country and the only reason is to stop her from speaking about her work and about the human rights situation in Pakistan the current cases against you know that accuses of her terrorism is because she spoke about the sexual violence by the Pakistan military in the conflict zones and during the counterterrorism operations in the northwest of Pakistan and she brought those stories to the mainstream media what was that? Were girls getting raped? Or, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, women getting raped, barging into their homes, violating their privacy, violating their dignity. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that uh, this year in January 2019, there was this, you know, a video that became viral in which a young boy raised the issue of military personnel barging into his home uh, and harassing his mother. He recorded this, you know, video. It was all. And Gulali actually organized a delegation of women who traveled to, uh, to North Waziristan uh, to show solidarity with the women who spoke about uh, against the harassment by the military. But also when the delegation w- traveled there, they met several other women who shared similar stories and some of them recorded their stories uh, and they wanted these stories to be brought to the mainstream media. And, uh, you know, definitely one, one thing I want to mention, the traveling to Waziristan and to the northwest of Pakistan to these tribal areas is not easy. Even locals cannot easily travel there. Uh, and it was the first ever time in the history of Pakistan that the delegation of women went there to meet other women. It never happened. So it was really like a history in the making that women going to show solidarity with other women. And what happened, of course, when these women and when, you know, Gulali and these other uh, members of the delegation brought these stories to the mainstream media, the military establishment was not happy with that at all. They did every attempt to silence the family who actually spoke about it the first time. But also we see that the at the time when Gulali brought up, start, you know, bringing these these stories and issues to the mainstream media, uh, she has been charged of terrorism and sedition. And after that, uh, the law enforcement agencies have been raiding our house in Islamabad in order to arrest her. 
there have been several raids, more than four raids in our home where our parents and our younger sister live. And the raids would happen most of the time in the middle of the night where more than 50 to 60 personnel, law enforcement personnel, would just come attack our home in more than 10 to 15 vehicles each time. And they would just search everything in our home, whether it was car or whether it's personal wardrobe or whether everything. And they snatched our uh, family's phone, our parents and our sister's phones. Uh, the CCTV system that was installed in our home to, for family security was taken away by them without producing any legal uh, documents for taking all these you know, equipments and for taking away any phones. And in one of the raids, they, took, they abducted our family driver who has been working with our family for some years. He was physically tortured and toxins were injected into his body because they wanted to know the whereabouts of my sister Gulali because she is currently forced into hiding at this time. Mm -hmm. And when the driver was released after that, he, you know, a very close friend of Gulali was illegally abducted. He was tortured and electrocuted for more than 13 hours. Like literally while he was handcuffed, electrical shocks were given to him. Saba, why are they so threatened? Why are they so threatened by uh, two very bright women uh, starting an organization called the Wear Girls and trying to organize youth to actually create a more peaceful society? Why is that so threatening to them? Uh, it is so threatening because, you know, one is that it's very, uh, yeah, like talking about these issues, like, you know, the, the usual image of the Northwest of Pakistan are women, you know, are conservative women and, you know, not speaking up, right? This is also where Malala came from as well, right? Malala, exactly. And actually, in fact, Malala Yousafzai attending one of our training program before she was shot. So she's the trainee of Aware Girls. Mm -hmm. So definitely it is the same area, but the overall it's not, it's not something that people will see that, you know, in the northwest of Pakistan, women coming forward and speaking up. And it's not very like Gulali's image or our image is not like, you know, a typical, a typical girl from the northwest of Pakistan in terms of maybe like, you know, not covering our head, let's say. It's not, you know, it's very unusual. People expect us to be in the traditional roles. Are you required to cover? Yeah, this is, you know, this is a very traditional requirement to have this and also not like, a burqa. No, no, not a burqa. Burqa is not our culture. It's come from Saudi Arabia. It's the colonization and in all that from that. But it is our culture is to have a chadar, which is a piece of long piece of cloth and to cover. And when we don't, we don't do that. And, you know, when you're a different person, just in terms of like, you know, this, but also someone who support, you know, who is working on women's rights, who is so vocal, who is not scared and who is still, you know, in, uh, yeah, who is in this male dominant and this very patriarchal society, uh, when you don't support the, you know, the patriarchy, but you are speaking up against and also speaking and questioning military, you know, in itself in Pakistan is, is not easy. You know, it's, it's very, no one can dare to even question, you know, the military, the wrongdoings of the military. It's not that easy to even question. So questioning in the first, and then when you're actually telling the stories, you know, of, of sexual assaults by the Pakistan military to the world is something that, you know, there is then, of course, no other excuse for them. But they are scared that sexual assault is international war crime. It is recognized as an international war crime. And if we are speaking about this issue and they are bringing it to the international media, that it means there will be international investigation maybe or like you know people will, will talk about it and uh, you know they will ask for accountability or not doing you know not being involved into war crimes so definitely this is something uh, you know that they don't want to and it took these women from the tribal areas it took them almost two decades because you know this war on terror is going on in Pakistan for almost two decades so it took the women of Pakistan and the tribal leaders almost two decades to speak up about this issue. It's the first ever time that women from these tribal areas are speaking up. This is the Me Too movement of Pakistan. Right, wow. you know, And how you see differently the Me Too movement in the West uh, and in the US. But this is where the women who have never been to school, but they are still recording, they're still telling these stories because enough is enough. Well, I think it's what's powerful now about this moment in time, because I think women all over the planet are supporting each other in finding their voice and speaking up about what their what the reality is and 
And obviously women, you know, there's different realities, but it's also very similar realities, you know? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's true that, uh, you know, um, I would like to mention one story that is very powerful when Gulali traveled to Waziristan, uh, to North Hesor in January, in which there is this one woman who, who is illiterate, an old woman, and every time the military would harass her, she would draw a line on a piece of paper. And she showed this, this picture to this delegation. It's a small, torn piece of paper. There are 25 lines drawn on it. Mm. Just imagine going through this, and then she was forced, you know, she was like, okay, you know, she cannot take all this, and she left that area. But What kind of harassment, in what ways were they harassing her? They were different, you know, these women have been faced a lot, uh, barging into homes, violating their privacy, violating their dignity, uh, you know, it's definitely, it's, it's a lot that these women, women are already taken in, in, you know, in the name of searching houses, in the name of like, you know, a lot of main things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, seeing the courage of this woman and the way they're, you know, documenting, I think it's really important that we talk about. It's really important because definitely we just cannot allow, you know, um, an institution to do this to women. And especially then when they're doing a lot of these things in the name of counterterrorism and then in the name of peace. It is definitely injustice. It's definitely something that, you know, the international community should should question, should question, you know, this. Uh, well, the thing that's very, you know, it, so I just, my last guest uh, was Stephanie Savell, and they have been uh, documenting the nine, the post 9-11 uh, wars and uh-huh. specifically the amount of money that the United States has been spending, which is obviously yes. this, my country has spent uh, more than the next seven to 10 countries combined. And um, in the name of uh, making the world safer for the United States and the world safer in general, but the reality is nothing has gotten safer. It's gotten less safe. And so listening to, to this kind of story, it's like, hmm, it's so clear that if people really wanted to make things safer, they would support somebody like Gulalai. They would support that kind of initiative. They would support youth, a youth peace network going into the madrasas and talking to to people about why they wouldn't necessarily want to be jihadists. You know, that would make a lot of sense as a peace initiative, but that's not what has been supported. I I think by my government, um, which is, I'm sure it's part of the problem here. Um, I think there are a lot of Western countries that are actually in, you know, for them, the guns, weapons, producing guns and weapons and selling them is a, is a huge business for them. And I think it's really important, you know, it's really important that the world think about, you know, the Western world as well, that what they want to do already because of, you know, these uh, in the name of counterterrorism, in the name of security initiatives, millions of dollars have already been invested into more weapons, into more guns, more bombs. And all the amount of money, like every penny that is spent on these guns, visas, bombs, is injustice to girls who wants to go to school or to people like Gulali, who is a peace builder and who is labeled as a terrorist in her own country, although she's an internationally celebrated human rights defenders and activist, but, uh, you know, the way she has been framed, or you know, and the way she has been kind of, the, because the state, Pakistan state is afraid of her voice. Uh, but, you know, that there are, I think, the Western, uh, in the Western world, the, the business of war and making money such a lucrative business, but this has to be diverted. This has to be, you know, this has to be changed. And as you mentioned already about Silla, that you had a talk with her. So I here I would like to mention, you know, some figures from Silla's book. The book is Business Plan for Peace, in which she writes that the armed conflict causes massive economic losses every year, but peace building and peacekeeping are very grossly underfunded. The spending in 2015 on peace building was 6.8 billion and peacekeeping is 8.27 billion. And together they just represent 2% of the economic losses caused by the conflict. So this book, you know, demonstrates the total cost of scaling up the most effective systems to prevent war over a period of 10 years would cost under 2 billion. So, you know, the figures. But also uh, in this book says that currently we spend $9 billion annually on ice cream. I'm sorry, on what? Uh, nine billion annually on ice cream. And ice cream. <laughs> so I, you know, always say, and I always mention this, that I like ice cream and I would like to eat ice cream in a peaceful world. Hmm. So in terms of that, yeah, I think, you know, the, the money that is being spent on, whether it's a, a counterterrorism initiative or whether it's, you know, 
on this war on terror, it needs to be uh, local communities and local peace builders needs to be engaged and they need to be involved in these processes. You know, what type of funding should go, what type of how, because like, uh, you know, in, in the case of Golali, we clearly see that it's the government and it's the, it's the state which is so scared of peace builders because they are, they are scared that the war crimes that they are doing will be exposed or, you know, they will be, uh, they won't be able to cover up those crimes that they are doing in the name of this war on terror. Mm -hmm. So I think it's all, it's all together that yes, the international community should make uh, the governments accountable for this war on terror, that what they're doing, how, you know, uh, what is the output. And uh, in case of Pakistan, I clearly see that this space for civic society is, is shrinking, but also, uh, maybe actually want to point out towards the how you know the state has supported militants like Osama bin Laden, uh, who was hiding in Pakistan. Uh, and it's not me saying, but it's you know it's one of the former uh, security agency representative who has written in, in a book and who has you know mentioned it in multiple occasions that the, it was the state who gave support to bin Laden. It was the state who gave support to Esanullah Esan, who is another terrorist and a mastermind of the attack on school children in which more than 140 children were killed. That was 2014. So this, this man, Esanullah Esan, is treated like a state guest. No, pro, no legal processes against him, nothing. Hafiz Saeed, which is another terrorist who is a well-known, like internationally recognized terrorist. He's also being a lot of support, uh, given support by the state. Uh, but Pakistani state is doing crackdown against human rights defenders, against journalists who are speaking up, against judges, you know, anyone. Uh, because in this current uh, government in Pakistan, it is very much controlled, you know, by other state institutions. It's not a very open democracy. And that's where the problem is. So let me ask you something. The name of your organization, one of the organizations is Aware Girls. Yes. And this podcast has uh, consistently, I mean, we, we feel pretty clear that there's a strong correlation between empowering women and building peace on the planet. And in fact, that, that if we got gender right, in fact, we would have a much more peaceful planet. We would not be supporting militarism to the extent that we are. And I'm saying we, the human community. Mm -hmm. I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. Does that seem true to you? And what would happen, what would happen specifically as, you know, for Pakistan as a case in point, if there really were true gender equality in Pakistan, what would happen to militarism in Pakistan in your view? Uh, I think if there is gender equality, of course, it will positively impact the situation. If there is free space, an enabling environment where women can speak up and, you know, where uh, they can talk about these issues, they can have also have proper, you know, legal remedies. If there are proper legal remedies, of course, I think it's going to be really thrive. And of course, the women's rights movement in Pakistan is affected by this uh, current administration and this current government, because if there is no free civic space, uh, the, usually the, the groups which are marginalized groups are, you know, they are uh, affected in a negative way. So similarly, because now there is so much crackdown generally on civil society, it's the feminist and the women's rights movement who are also getting like more intense crackdown and, you know, more not having free spaces uh, because, uh, you know, as, as we see generally in society, the the marginalized groups affected most. In Pakistan, what happened when there was on 8th of March, which is International Women's Day, there were thousands of women who came on the streets, uh, who protested and was, was, you know, rallying for women's rights. But what happened, the, the government of Northwest of Pakistan and also overall, there was like, a, there was a resolution in the parliament against this march and against this rally. So you can imagine that, we, you know, it's just, it was, again, history making that so many thousands of women coming up forward, speaking for their rights. It's been almost more than three years that uh, I live in New York. And when I was in Pakistan, there was, I couldn't see this kind of like, you know, amazing and, and brilliant movement when I was there. And only in such short, of, short period of time, you can see that so many women coming forward. And instead of celebrating those women, instead of showing support to them, instead of listening to them, there is a resolution that, you know, against these women, it's really... But it's interesting. It sounds like you see a change. You think that women in Pakistan are waking up and coming together more and protesting more and speaking out, even if even if there are resolutions against them? 
Yes, they are. Uh, as uh, you know, they, there are uh, women, there are women lawyers, there are women activists, there are women you know, journalists who are, uh, instead of being so much uh, crackdown and repression, they are coming forward, they're, you know, speaking up. Uh, I have been working, you know, for years I have been working with women and I've been working to uh, empower young women into citizens of equal rights and responsibilities. I have seen that they are fighting, you know, the extremists. Uh, I, when I was working, I was working um, to st also strengthen the governance structures through the effective participation of women and girls in these processes. So when, uh, when I was working, we built the capacity of women in, so that they can participate in the political processes and also in the democratic process of the country. And back in 2015, there were 10 women that we trained. They ran for election. They won the local elections in Pakistan. So not only you know, challenging that extremist narrative, but also taking away space from those extremist narratives and you know, being there in those processes, in the decision-making processes, in the policy-making processes. And when these women came forward and ra running those elections in law, in some villages, it was first ever time that women were even running for elections and, you know, participating in these processes. But what is happening also with this current, you know, government, we have seen that the number of women in the policymaking has been starkly decreased. Is that because of global authoritarianism? Well, it's because of the current government. It's because of this uh, in, Pakistan. in Pakistan, which is not, you know, pro-women's rights, which is not... Uh, you know, and a lot of these meetings, like, you know, every day you follow their social media and the updates that they give on uh, about the meetings or anything, they're all male. Like, you know, there is in majority of these meetings, there is zero percent of women. So definitely this government, this current government in Pakistan is, you know, is not very supportive towards women. Or there are no spaces, you know, in the policy making process. OK, so what you have on your plate, what you're taking on is so immense and obviously needs a lot of support and uh what gives you the most hope and what feels like the greatest support uh that are moving things in the direction that you think they need to go uh so when i see uh you know so many um young women and young men speaking up for the rice and still coming forward that definitely gives me hope i have seen a lot of uh uh, women, I've seen a lot of men coming forward and uh, doing amazing work in Pakistan. And I think, you know, that is definitely one thing that gave me hope that even instead of like so much uh, going on currently, but also uh, the environment that we all grew up in, you know, the conflicts that we all mostly like the people in the northwest of Pakistan, the younger generation have lived in conflict for years and years. Their entire and lives, right? I mean, really their entire life. Exactly, our you know our entire lives, and still they want peace. They're working for peace. They don't want to be engaged in violent activities. Like for example, currently there is this one grassroots movement rising up in Pakistan, which is called Pashtun Tahafuz movement, which means Pashtun uh, Protection Movement. This is a grassroots movement that is asking for uh, for a truth and reconciliation commission that is asking to make sure that the people who are enforcedly disappeared are being brought to, in the court system. Uh, and, you know, in this moment, there are a lot of younger generation who are the face of this movement. Uh, so definitely when they are engaged so nonviolently, you know, they have held demonstrations in which more than 40,000 and 50,000 people have come up, you know, in one single demonstration. Mm -hmm. And the record is that not even a single flower pot has been, you know, broken like it's so peaceful it's so peaceful mm -hmm. so definitely it's really uh, you know it's really good to see and it's really good to see that yes they are the hope of pakistan and gulali actually is also facing all this crackdown because she showed solidarity with this movement you know with this ptm person papa's moment and she's not you know the leader of the movement but you know but they are so scared the state is so scared of brave voices like gulali because they know that if such a non-violent movement is happening. And if the world knows, you know, about it and this movement have more credible voices and if people internationally sh start showing solidarity with this movement, the military will be in trouble because uh, military in itself, the spokesperson of the military, which is, you know, DGISPR, known as DGISPR, Major Asif Wafur, in April, he held Sorry, a... What, what was that? Uh, DGISPR, Asif Wafur, 
is his name. Uh-huh. And he's the spokesperson of the armed forces. Okay. Uh-huh. He held a press conference in April and he said that time is up. Time is up for the people of the Pashtun Tahavas movement. And then he warned them, you know, that you have all the liberty. Just imagine you have all the liberty of being nonviolent. Okay. You know, and then he was like, you know, your time is up and there will be crackdown against you. And then there were videos on YouTube started emerging. In these YouTube videos, it is clearly mentioned that the state will have, the military will have crackdown against Gulali and, you know, against the other two people, two leaders of the movement who are the parliamentarians. And only less than a month after that, you know, there were two cases against Gulali, accusing of terrorism. And now she's forced into hiding. And the two parliamentarians of this movement are being arrested and they are in jail. Uh, they are not uh, being released at all. We don't see a chance of them being released. Every time they have a court date, the judge is on vacation. The judge is sick. The judge is, has an off day and the judge never even listens to them. So the justice system in Pakistan is, is you know, not transparent. There's so much influence. And that's where I see, to answer to your question, that where I see hope. So I see hope in all these people who have been, like there is so much crackdown against them by the strongest institution of the country, but they still are standing up. Mm-hmm. No one has been, you know, said that, okay, we don't want to work for peace anymore because, you know, we cannot, uh, of course, you know, this institution is so strong and we cannot stand up to this crackdown. Like my family has been threatened so much, being harassed so much in so many ways, in, including my younger sister, who is a lookalike of our sister Gulali. Uh, these agencies told her that we were about to abduct you, but then we realized that you're not her. And they interrogated her. They cross-questioned her because they thought that she is her. She was being followed even if she would go in to buy vegetables or milk. She was being followed by multiple cars and multiple people. And she was still... Uh, you know, don't, of course, you know, our parents are still when, you know, when the media outlets are interviewing my parents, my parents are saying that I'm proud of my daughters, that we are proud of our daughters. <laughs> we are proud of the world that they are doing, although oh, their life is in hell these days. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have, they, they're not living a normal life from on. It's been now 90, more than 90 days. And, uh, you know, they try to socially isolate them, but they're everybody, uh, you know, the people in Pakistan, they're still standing very strong because one, you know, we are standing on the right side of the history. We, we stood up for, for a cause, which is human rights and peace. And, you know, we will continue. Even our sister is forced into hiding. We don't know, you know, you know, definitely a lot about her at this time. We don't know about her whereabouts. Our younger sister has to be relocated to a foreign country uh, because, you know, it's impossible for her to live in Pakistan anymore. And she has to start her life from scratch just because she's someone's sister. Our parents, you know, they, they even cannot talk to us, you know, normally because their communication is being surveilled, is being watched, taped. You know, I just barely talk to them and cannot talk about a lot of things at all because, you know, they will be in trouble. Their safety and security and they're old. You know, my, my father is a human rights activist. So, uh, and he has been to jail. He was accused of blasphemy before 9-11. Actually, when he spoke out against the Taliban and the militant groups, he went to jail on that. So he, he stood up. But my mother, who is a housewife, she has nothing to do with what my sister says, you know, outside or what my activism, my, my sister is involved in. But she's just being dragged into all this just because she's a mother, just because she's a mother of Gurali. Mm-hmm. She's going to court every week. She's citing the case. Yeah. And that's, you know, when you asked me earlier about support of my mother and I told you that, you know, I think it will come later, that when my sister, my sister was arrested in February because she was protesting against the brutal murder of a member of the PTM of the Pashtun Tahafaz movement, uh, that uh, member was killed in broad daylight and was brutally killed. So my sister was, you know, participating in this protest and my sister Gulali was arrested from that protest uh, she was taken to a police station and then um, she was disappeared for 40 hours my family didn't know about her whereabouts at all uh, we were told that you know she is being tortured and you know and a lot of like you know stories that were told to us and, and we, we had no idea what's going on uh, but it was our mother who took the lead 
and my mother and my younger sister, Shogla, who was there and who was, you know, searching for her from one police station to another police station, from one government office to another government office, uh, and who were advocating, you know, for her safe recovery. For um, So definitely it's women like, you know, my sister or my mother who instead of, you know, all this is happening, and but <laughs> and me, but maybe because I'm kind of undermining, no, 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 but I'm not saying it because I think I'm, I'm at least comparatively in a safer part of the world. How did you come to be in, the, in New York? Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a very personal story that I might not be able to share a lot, but uh, I, the reason why I came to New York was uh, in, I was in a situation in which I had to save my life and I had no other option. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had to come to New York because I have siblings here. Uh, yeah, so I was in a situation in which I had to, uh, you know, escape. And the only option was New York because I have family who could support me and who could help me in, in escape. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that was, uh, you know, but still um, I'm here. I'm in a position, you know, in a much safer position. And I think that's why, you know, I'm, I'm kind of giving more credit to, you know, my family who is back there on the ground, who is going through so much. And my sister who is... Uh, just only because she speaks truth to power, she's facing so much. So, yeah, definitely working for peace generally is not easy in Pakistan. People even who are associated with you, friends, even like there are friends who are tweeting in support of Gulali when uh, these cases of like, you know, this terrorism were filed against her and they received calls. They received death threats over phones that they should not tweet anything in support of her. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they will be in trouble. Mm-hmm. So currently, you know, it's very hard time for, for human rights defenders. A lot of repression. So, Saba, we are uh, hitting our, our time boundary in terms of the hour. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to um, say anything that you want, you know, like to summarize or to say anything that, you know, stands out to you, that you want people most to under, any, anything that is in, in conclusion from your point of view. Uh, well, uh, my conclusion is that my message to everybody is that although there is, you know, not only in Pakistan, overall, the, you know, the, the rise of nationalism and authoritarian, we can see that it's very growing. I mean, we can see it in many different countries. For now. For now. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's very important for everyone not to be silent and still to speak up because if you choose to be silent, you know, uh, uh, when we think that it's really hard, maybe when it's over, then we will speak. I think it's not going to solve any issue. I think it's, uh, you know, it's not better for the world. It's not better generally. So my message is this, we, you know, all the people all around should speak up, whether they're in the U.S. or in, you know, in the Western world or in Pakistan or in similarly other countries. It's very important to be persistent in our causes, even at the cost of, you know, whatever comes. So definitely it's, it's very important. And also I think the responsibility of the people who are who are not living in the, you know, in the conflict-affected areas, I think responsibility comes on, on their shoulders uh, to show solidarity with those people, to listen to them, to talk more and to actually give them spaces so that they can talk about these issues, they can bring these issues to the, uh, you know, to the international forums. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at least in, in Pakistan, there is so much, like, you know, crackdown, even on media, people cannot even speak about my sister's case or, uh, you know, about uh, any other crackdown. So it's very important that people internationally give more spaces uh, to the people uh, who come from certain situations. And if they want to follow you or know what's happening, what's the best way to, uh, to pay attention? I have a Twitter account that I post updates on. That's, I believe, that's my own name, Aid Saba Ismail. And my email address is also, you know, anyone can reach me out on my email address. We'll post that with the episode if you'd like. Yeah. So my email address and Twitter both, uh, they can follow my Twitter for more updates and can send an email for having more updates. And what about Aware Girls? How do, if people are interested, is you and Gulalai is the same? I mean, it is, if they wanted to follow Aware Girls, is that a separate organization or is it the two of you? Uh, well, there are people, there are other, we have, you know, active board members, we have staff and team that are working um, on the ground. They are still working for, for women's rights and, you know, for peace 
on the ground. So definitely, uh, but for uh, for any information, at least for now, for Uyghurs, they can contact me. Okay. Uh, because there is so much crackdown on on Uyghurs, you know, in Pakistan and on associates that their communication is being so watched that it can, that, you know, that it can pose risk to a lot of people in Pakistan. So for now, it's it's more better to contact me for information for Uyghurs, Youth Peace Network, you know, any other updates. Well, I hope, you know, I just, what you're doing is so amazing, so courageous. And I, um, I guess uh, maybe it's because I'm an older, uh, older than you and the mother in me is thinking, and what are you doing to take care of yourself? <laughs> uh, I, um, yeah, it's a question that a lot of our friends and supporters have asked me in the previous three months. And a lot of my friends have pushed me to do a lot of things, but uh, it's very hard. Yeah, uh, it's extremely hard to be in in such a situation in which you have the responsibility. Well, that can't be more pressure, too. I mean, I don't ask it like that, but yeah. I I guess I think because what you're doing is so critical, uh, it's hard to know how to how does one take care of oneself given the kind of pressures. Yeah, and one way you take care of yourself is that you don't try and do it all by yourself, that actually all of us are paying, you know, get, get, do this podcast, pay attention so that people are paying attention to what's going on. Because I think that particularly around the world, I think women as a group are starting to support each other more, paying attention to, you know, the, the similarities in stories and wanting to see, and many men too. Yes. Um, but I think, I think women as a group are uh, needing to do it and I'm wanting to support them in doing it. And uh, Thank you so much. You know, definitely a lot of our friends and you know, stakeholders and partners have showed immense support in the past three months. And I think, you know, it's really, it's so incredible to see. And I think I'm so blessed and my family is so blessed. My sister is so blessed to have so many people that, are, you know, that they are supporting her, they're supporting this cause, you know, they're definitely not supporting, you know, one individual based on, you know, being their favorite, but because they are, they want to support this cause. So the, the support that I have seen from my sister is remarkable. And I'm so thankful, like, you know, it will be very hard for me to thank, you know, and to name any, you know, friends, organization or institutions, but yeah. Uh, and that definitely gave me a lot of hope. Well, because it's not just about, obviously your sister and you are a symbol of, of a whole different approach that can be taken to peace building. You know, that that the money that's been put into the military, that my country's put into the military, that other countries, it hasn't ended up making this world safer. But actually doing the kind of work you're talking about, I think has the potential to make it safer. So Yeah, that's true. That's true. That, uh, you know, that's why I want to talk, you know, and, and I mentioned about investing in peace and investing in, in young peace builders, investing in uh, local peace builders, and investing in older as uh, <laughs> peace builders like you who are playing, you know, who are playing their role and, you know, giving spaces and voices to people like me uh, and other peace builders, of course. And I think, it, you know, it's the investment in terms of money is, is very important, the way the money goes. Uh, recently, uh, the U.S. government have passed the Global Fragility Act. Global Fragility Act. So uh, if the money that goes through this uh, this act, uh, you know, I think that uh, also the people in the U.S. should advocate that this money should go through the local organizations, to the local institutions, to the local partners for peace building. Mm-hmm. Uh, the approaches should be, I believe, locally led because the local people know the realities. They know, you know, they have the solutions right. instead of just targeting uh, or investing, you know, giving out weapons to someone, this money should be used very tactfully, you know, in, in consultations. Mm-hmm. So definitely it's, it's very important because it's uh, money, power, you know, resources play a huge role in shaping these issues or shaping, you know, the solution towards these issues. Well, anyway, I really thank you so much for your time and for joining us and for all of your courage. It's really, it's so inspirational and, uh, yeah, and I uh, I hope this um, lots of people listen to you far and wide on the podcast. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you for your time. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, we so appreciate it if you could share this episode with anyone who you think might be interested. Uh, write a review for us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast or make a comment on our blog at susancoleman.global. We're trying now to release an episode a month 
ideally at the same time, although we haven't quite gotten there, but we're working on it. Um, coming up soon will be a return guest, Rianne Eisler, who's going to talk about her latest book with Douglas Fry, Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future. And uh, then we have after that an interview with another amazing young woman from South Sudan, Ria Yuyada. So stay tuned for that. And thanks again for listening to the Peacebuilding Podcast. Podcast.